Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 461 of The Sausage Factory. In this episode, I interview Moritz Wagner of Me 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 Games and ask them about the design and development of their stealth strategy game, Shadow Gambit, The Cursed Crew. This one's a bit of a long one, because Shadow Gambit, The Cursed Crew is quite a complex game, in a good way. It's one of those stealth strategy games where you have a team of people interacting with each other, it's all third-person and turn-based, really. You interact, or semi-turn-based. A hybrid. You you basically freeze action and slow down time and you tell them to do things and then they interact and do the things. It's, it's a beautiful game as well. And sadly, the last game that Me 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 Games will be making. Closed stop shop since creating this game. You might realise that towards the end when I don't actually you know invite the guests back because, well... The, 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 the studio is shutting up. Stop. And you can find out why. I'm not going to go into details why that is, but it is true. Nonetheless, it doesn't detract from our conversation uh, with Moritz about this extraordinary game. It does work extremely well on the Steam Deck. I can verify that, for I did play it on that very machine. Now, the music to this show is by Filippo Beck Pecos, and the links to their Bandcamp uh website is placed on the show notes as always so if you want to grab the full soundtrack by all means do so it is exceptional as you'll hear we've already heard the first track in this show so without further ado let us listen to myself from the relatively recent past talk to Moritz about the creation of Shadow Gambit the Cursed Crew. Hello Moritz. Hi. (laughs) Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Uh, I'm Moritz. I'm the head of design at Mimimi Games, um, and I've been, well, designing games for about 15 years now. Yeah. And can you tell us how do you make your start making video games, please? Um, I actually 
started studying it. There was a university uh, here in Munich uh, that was that had a program for game design, and that's where I actually started. Before that, of course, well, I didn't do much. I was doing a little bit of level design modding in in Unreal stuff like that, but not much. So I basically actually started by studying it. Um, yeah. Okay, and how did you make your sort of passage through? Um, well, we started during our studies, and that's actually where the core of Mimi Me Games already met. Um, so we were doing projects since the second semester. Uh, it was a bachelor's degree, so six semesters. And since the second semester, we've been basically working together. There have been other people that didn't join the company afterwards who were part of the student projects. Um, and we made our first game in the second semester, which was a 2D platformer flash thingy, a very small game. Um, with destructible environment uh, and stuff like that. It was pretty fun, but a sh short little thing. And then we made another project in the third semester with a three, 3D project that would eventually turn into our first bigger game uh, in a couple of years down the line, which was called The Last Tinker, a City of Colors. It was a third-person action adventure, I would say. We would call it platformer, but it didn't have a jump button. So people said it, it's not, it can't be called a platformer uh, because you had this auto movement where you could run and hold down a button and it would move automatically. Um, and yeah, I did that during our studies as well. And then we founded the company afterwards um, and worked on, well, some mobile stuff uh, for Ravensburger, which is a German board game publisher. And they have had us make these back then, the iPad, and it was rather new i think it was just coming out and the phones were becoming a thing mobile gaming was becoming a thing it was very different from what it's now uh it was not that free to play driven um it was more you could actually make smaller things like the ravensburger games and make some money with that so we did some ports for them um and made two games i think and during that time we started working on the last tinker which was uh, that platformer we finished that in like one and a half years um, or something like that it was published by Unity Games, who actually had a publishing label for a short period of time. And we were a part of that. And then we did another mobile thing. And then we started pitching Shadow Tactics, which would become the first game that people probably know us for. Um, and yeah, we've been making that for a while. Moving on to Desperados 3. Um, then Shadow Tactics, Ico's Choice, which was a standalone expansion. And the last one we did was Shadow Gambit. And yeah, my role has been that of a game and level designer in the beginning because we were just six people. So we didn't need any like hierarchies for direction, lead positions. That was not really a thing that much. Um, and it has developed basically with the company growing uh, with every project I've been doing that job for various team sizes now where I uh, work closely with the creative director. So we come up with the vision uh, and make sure what the game should be and then um, communicate with the team and also work on the games myself uh, quite a lot because uh, we're a small team or we used to be. Yeah. Thanks for that. So I just wanted to flesh that out uh, yes. because it's, a, it's an important to know. It, it, it's important to know where one is. So, Next question. As creators, what do you believe are your biggest influences? So, I mean, the obvious influence is Commandos. Uh, I think that our pitch basically was Commandos with ninjas back then. 
uh, when we made Shadow Tactics, and so that had a huge influence on us. Um, and I think another one that I would say, or another type of genre that has a big influence on me, or had at least on what I want to do, have been immersive sims. So uh, I love Deus Ex, I love Thief, I love uh, well, basically everything Arcane has done, um, almost everything. Um, the Dishonored were a big influence on me, I think, especially the Prey, um, which is one of the newer ones they did. I think it's it's one of my favorite games ever. And yeah, I think those is the... I mean, of course, you get influenced by basically everything uh, that you see and you play. So everything plays a little part, but the way that the, the immersive sims like make systems work and they put game design first or the interactivity, not necessarily game design and this is what I really like uh, because I feel like the genre or the, the medium of games is about interactivity, right? So I, I prefer games that put a large emphasis on how players can interact with systems and the world they're in uh, more so than maybe the game looking great. That's also a great thing, but um, I prefer the interactivity part. So, Next question. What video game developer do you admire most and why? I mean, that's a question. I guess the answer might change over, like, I have certain time periods attached to it. Um, I have always been a huge fan of Blizzard games. Um, and, like, I have played, I don't know how many hours of Diablo 2. I'm still playing that game, basically. So it's, it's. Uh, I think my, after Prey with Prey, it's different genres. It's my favorite game, I think. And I've played tons and tons of Warcraft 3 because I was actually doing esport back then. I was a pro player, so I played a lot of Warcraft. Um, and not World of Warcraft, Warcraft 3 at the RTS. And um, so Blizzard, during that certain period, StarCraft is... I love StarCraft. Uh, so that period between the Diablo, early Diablo, uh, moving up until to... Well, I also love Overwatch, so I, I, I do like what Blizzard does. Um, and... Um, Aside from that, as I mentioned already, like the looking glass type of games, uh, basically that immersive sim is something that I admire a lot, what they have been doing. Um, and also as basically, well, the progenitor of that, no, progenitor is the other way around, right? Uh, the, the thing following it, which would be Arcane Studios, where I think they have been making incredible games uh, that I love a lot. But yeah, I mean, there's so much, right? There's so many great games. But this is, but if I'm being asked, I think these would be the two bigger developers where I say their work is really important to me. Last question for the first half. What are you playing right now, Royce? So just today, I've actually played a little bit of V Rising because I wanted to check it out. And then I realized it's very different from what I thought it was and that I stopped playing it. It's not a bad game, but I wasn't in the mood for it because um, it's very much more MMO than I thought it would be. Um, I've been playing Diablo 4 a little. I've been playing Overwatch lately. Um, when I'm, I don't play that much single-player games anymore. or I never used to, actually. I've always been very much... When I play myself, I'm very much a multiplayer guy because I like competition. And I've been playing a lot of Magic the Gathering uh, online as well, and that's what I'm basically doing all the time. So... Probably the last thing I'm playing right now, or I just played just before this interview, was Magic, actually. It's a very pure, transparent model of programming. Someone, a very good friend of mine, said to me many, many years ago, 
the card games like that are very transparent in how they they show you actions and triggers and functions right in front of you and you feed them and you engage them and you set up scenarios to actually trigger those functions. So it's very cold, but yep. it's, it's, they were right. And that's why deck builders and we're actually talking about the virtual green room, about Slate Aspire and how that you could see it. And that's the appeal. It was one of the appeals mm. of these games. Is that true? Do you think it's true? Mm. I think it's true. Uh, I think a big part of what I love about Magic is, is just it's very it's grown so much that it's just so insane what you can do in the game and what's possible in it. And I just really like the way it forces you to think about things, um, dealing with chance and randomness in a way and trying to circumvent that. Um, and yeah, it's, it, I've been playing it since I'm a child, so I guess it's, it's sort of ingrained uh, in, in my gaming habits. Um, and I would agree. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very clear to understand certain things about the games though to be fair with magic in a certain space it's also very convoluted in many ways like the game is uh, highly weird and complex um but it's evolved into being so yeah anyway we could talk about magic all evening but we won't the listeners want to us to delve in deep let's go shadow gambit the cursed crew First question, what is Shadow Gambit, the Curse Crew? Uh, Shadow Gambit is a, we call it stealth strategy game. Um, it's about having a small crew of specialist characters. It's an isometric view, that's something that you probably said at first. And it's also no, real-time, so it's not turn-based. Many people look at the games and think they're turn-based because they're used to that from the top-down perspective and XCOM and stuff like that. Um, and... You're controlling a small group of usually three um, 
characters that are specialists that have very special skills uh, that make them stand out and you're fighting a group called the inquisition of the burning maiden um, who are weird religious zealots and it's a stealth game and sort of a puzzle game in a way so you're presented with situations um, like in many stealth games where you can see guards looking at each other and you need to figure out a way to take them out without getting detected though the game doesn't end if you get detected you can keep playing um It's not a binary thing. Um, you can play during the alarm that gets sounded and stuff like that. And it's a game of almost perfect information, uh, is what we like to call it. There's no fog of war. Um, you can see the whole map. You can see everything that's there. The only thing that is sort of obscured sometimes is the fact that you can only you can activate the enemy's vision cones. It's a cone that shows what they're seeing, and you can only have one of these active at the same time. So this is sort of where you need to memorize how other people were looking and just activate one vision cone. And then you solve puzzles using the, well, rather crazy and cool abilities of your crewmates uh, who are uh, the characters that you play as. And I mean, I could keep on going. We are visiting islands that are full of guards and you need to do a mission there usually. So you're in between those missions, you're going to be on the hub, which is the pirate ship. It's a sentient pirate ship called the Red Mali. It's a very important character in the game. Um, and then you do story progression there, pr progressing and unlock new characters, unlock new missions, this type of stuff. And then you go on missions and, and kill some bad guys stealthily. <laughs> Or you don't kill them at all. It's a stealth game, so you can actually just sneak through completely, but it gets a little harder if you do that. That's pretty much good summation of it. You, you like you said, you could go on, and we now will go on. <laughs> um, one of the things I've found with stealth um, tactical games, like uh, like Shadow Gambit, Curse Crew, is I call this. I call this. This is a personal thing, and mm. it may be something you understand too. I call it a line. I call mm -hmm. it the line of progress. Because in an engagement, you have maybe one, two, they have a, for some characters. And as you are going towards your goals, there's a line in front of them that as they progress, this line gets the circumference of this line, the space, this progress gets smaller and smaller towards the point. And what I marvel at is how you maintain the level of difficulty and engagement and stress just as the characters or your player characters are getting closer to their goal, whatever it may be. How do you do that? How do you maintain that level, knowing full well that the character's now traversed two-thirds, maybe three-quarters through this engagement, and they've still got that last quarter, which is usually ten times harder than what they did when they started out? What do you do? How have you found modelling that, that sense of stress And not, and not negative stress, but, you know, excitement, mm. stress, and anxiety, if you like. Again, not negative, just the engagement, because that's one of the things that's always driven me, especially through Shadow uh, Gambit, the Cursed Crew. It does it so well, so well, that that line. I'm not sure if you ever referred to the internally there, but I've always called it that, that front that you push <laughs> along. Can you talk us through that, please? So the way we structure our missions in these games and and thus i guess what you would describe as that line is of course it's always important to have certain pacing in it right you want certain high points to be there and you want parts that are easier or, or more relaxed um so it can ramp up and then ramp down and ramp up again maybe if that it's so long a mission and 
in general, so there's multiple factors in this. The first one is just how we build the environment and how we basically pace the enemy setups. And for every island, it's usually built in a way that we say, okay, there are certain points of interest. That's what we call them. This is where the, um, it's a German term that we use. It's called Kopfnuss, uh, which basically is a word for, it means head nut, uh, if you translate it literally. Um, it's where you think and, and touch your head and beat it against the wall, maybe. Um, it's basically the puzzle, uh, the, the harder puzzle parts. Um, and we place these in, in the point and points of interest. Uh, that's where you usually will have your mission objectives or the stuff that you need to do. And then we have this, we call them in-between areas that are in between these spots and guards that are placed there are placed more loosely. Um, you can progress through that faster. You don't need to be as meticulous. You don't need to use many characters at the same time usually to get through that. So it's a little easier um, in that part. So it becomes a little bit about <clears throat> pacing when you get into which parts, how long these in-between areas are, how difficult it is to play within them. And then having the the big point of interest at the end that's just the overall mission mission pacing another thing um is when level designers place the guards and, and try to create these situations they have to make or they try to make sure that the abilities that you use to solve the situations are not easily repeatable too much. Um, this is a little harder in Shadow Gambit because in our old games, we knew what characters people had on a mission, so we could model it perfectly for those characters. It was very easy to know that these are the five abilities players will have, and so we can model against that. In Shadow Gambit, there's free character selection, so that is um, a lot more difficult to do, but it still is possible um, to build it in a way where you can say... I can use this ability one or once or twice in a row, but then there's probably going to be a situation where it's not the best to use that ability. So you will switch to another ability, use a different character, or use the ability in a different way. And if we're doing that, it sort of makes it interesting again. You you don't get into a well zone where you're just doing the same thing over and over, um, and it gets dull or boring. But you need to rethink frequently. Um, that's another part that is part of this, and a very very big part, of course, that enables this is the abilities of the characters themselves um, where we try to build the characters in a way that they always have clear weaknesses um, they have strengths and weaknesses and if a character has a weakness that means they will at some point reach a, a spot where that weakness becomes apparent and, and becomes a problem and thus you will need to switch to another character and again that changes the pace um, to be fair, you switch a lot between characters. I think most people do in the games uh, because you do a lot with them at the same time. That is sort of a, the key feature of the game, I guess, is just to synchronize things. Um, but still, yeah, you will you will swap between characters a lot, and that just keeps things fresh, uh, I think, and keeps things interesting. And another part, of course, is the narrative uh, that we have. I think just the story progressing is something that keeps people interested. And also on that line, just getting their attention might grow. Maybe gameplay is a little more dull there, but then a story beat happens and that might be interesting to people. So they, it's a balance between all these things. Um, and another one is, of course, the environments themselves, keeping them fresh. Um, there's something that we talk about in level design as well. The term that I use always is it's identity. It's, it's an internal term is that every point of interest or every part that people engage in needs to feel special and have something that makes it memorable. Um, so 
for example, it's it's a little harder in Shadow Gambit because it's, it has these open environments, um, so it might not work as well anymore. It's always a trade-off between things that you're doing. It's, it's very open, sandboxy, and thus the identity sometimes takes a hit. But especially in our older games, that was very strong. What it, it basically means is just you can remember that specific point. And if I tell you what, like, if the identity, it might be a visual thing. It might be a balcony. Uh, that where there's a guard on that balcony and that guard is very annoying. And so the whole time you play, you have to play around that balcony guard. And so people will remember, ah, the balcony thing. And if you talk to someone, you can be like, you remember this thing with the balcony and the guy on the balcony? Ah, yeah, yeah, that one. And so this is sort of the identity. It could also be a narrative thing where people are t- like enemies in the setup are talking about a specific thing and doing something that fits with that. Um, and so I have this small fun story happening there. Um, it could be a pure gameplay thing where we say three types of this guard are looking at each other or something like that. But it needs to be distinguishable. Um, and that is something, if you just build the setups, that might not happen. And what that does for this line thing, I think, is that it just keeps it fresh and it makes it so that people feel like it's a different thing. We try to pace it in a way that we do not use the same identity too close to each other, against each other so you don't have the same thing again. And again, it, it enhances the pacing. Fantastic answer. Yeah, it's, uh, like I said, it's so many interacting parts, but ultimately I just see it as this lovely wavy line that actually sometimes goes back on you. That's just terrifying when you've made progress and then you've got to retreat. And knowing when to retreat is very important in uh, in games like this and certainly in Shadow Gambit is uh, the curse crew doesn't uh, shy away from that. It doesn't because you can just press F8 and that's the cleanest retreat you can do. Because Indeed. it a lot about quick save and quick load. Yes, actually. it makes it a component of the game. Yeah. Before we delve too much into that, I want to ask you about the world. Yes. So the world that Shadow Gambit, the Curse Crew, is set in isn't our own. As far as I know, there were no sentient um, ships in the 1700s, as far as, as, far as I'm aware. As far as I'm aware. And also the crew are, is is basically undead. I mean, yeah. you know, we would just send in the Ghostbusters and have, be done with it. You know? <laughs> It'd be yeah. a very different game. Um, whereas they decided to send Zealots in. So having that conceit, anyway, the only word I can think of, is that having that world, having this idea that they're fantastical, the people you're controlling, and by the way, listener, you're, listening, you're controlling the undead. You're the good guys that happen to be undead. That's a whole thing you have to discover for yourself and why that is. Has that really allowed you to, because you could push outside the boundaries of, you know, the laws of nature, and has allowed you to really go a little bit off kilter? I mean, there's one character that has a cannon strapped to their back, for example, everyone. Which normally, normal instances, is a very bad idea. <laughs> not good for the back pains. It's yeah. not for the back pain, no. But how have you found the? It must have been quite fun, or indeed terrifying at the same time, knowing that the laws of physics don't really apply to these beings. Yeah, so we've been in. I want to say semi-realistic settings before, like Shadow Tactics was in during Japan during the Edo period, and. Um, Desperados 3 is a spaghetti western. I think they are both like more movie realities. Like it's not historically correct. We try to be historically correct in how things look maybe, but um, it's it's a movie-like setting. And for Shadow Gambit, 
but that meant it was bound to realism. There was no such thing as magic. Uh, well, in Desperados, we did a little foreshadowing of what would be coming in uh, Shadow Gambit, but with one character. But we knew that when we wanted to make the next game, we wanted to push things. We wanted to be there to be a magical aspect in it because we wanted to try our character abilities that are more crazy and more fun to play with. So that was basically one of the core pillars for the pitches we did for that game was okay even before it was even shadow gambit it was clear that whatever it was it needed to have magic or sci-fi technology that enabled us to do whatever we want um and we came down with the ghost pirates of the cursed crew um as a, as a vehicle for that and uh, so that was the initial starting point um and then we well we started building from there like if you are the ghost pirates what would what would be a world where you want to actually be the ghost pirates, as you said before, um, they're the good guys in this um, sort of, uh, and I mean, they're killing a whole bunch of people, but they are the good guys because the people they kill are very bad. It it plays in the, in the lost Caribbean, as we call it. That is basically, it's an alternate history version of our world um, where at some point the people found out that there's magic uh, there, which the magic works in a way that basically the, dead things not even only people or animals um the souls don't leave our space easily they're sort of staying there and so there's the soul energy um that that is around and souls are around and these are sort of what fuel the magic and the undead are roaming uh, there and this is when people found out about that the europeans they sent the spanish inquisition uh, to take care of it back then it was the spanish inquisition uh, our game takes place about 100 years after that and the inquisition is not spanish anymore like there might be some spaniards in it but um it's just the inquisition they've become their own faction um there's a lot of backstory about how all that happened and basically what they have found is a way it's 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 a sort of type of flame that is also magical but they refuse to believe that for them it's a godly thing um and that they can use to defeat the undead. So they've basically eradicated the whole Caribbean from all undead and then everything that's cursed or magical and started building this very, very strict fascist world um, that is all about rules and achieving something that they call the grand design, which they don't really even know what that is. It's not defined much. Um, there's people in the, in the Inquisition that get visions from the flame um, that they have found because the flame is a very dangerous thing. Uh, they get visions and everything that people get as a vision is directly put into dogma. So it's become this incredibly large bureaucratic weird thing where there's completely random rules. And I'm going on that tangent because there's actually a gameplay reason for all that. And we wanted to build a game where as many things as possible in the world are aligned with the gameplay mechanics um, and, and support them. And one thing that in stealth games very often is required is very weird and stupid enemy AI uh, because you you want the enemies to be predictable. Uh, that's incredibly important in a stealth game. If the enemy AI becomes unpredictable, it's not fun anymore. You want to toy with them. You want to be in control. What, if you start a combat and they overwhelm you, you want to be overwhelmed. But if you're in the stealth loop, you want to be in control and you want to be the person that decides what they do, basically. Um, and... This means, especially for the level designers, like these these guards, they need to walk these very weird routes uh, and they these very artificial routes sometimes just to make the, the, the puzzle work, basically. Um, and 
when something bad happens, maybe they find a dead body of, of a comrade, they will not do what a normal person would do. I mean, they will sound the alarm, but then after 30 seconds, everybody's going to be like, okay, yeah, I guess that's it. I'll go back to my post now and, and do what I've been doing, which is completely unrealistic. So there's a lot of suspension of disbelief happening in stealth games all the time. And we try to build that faction in a way that it could support it a little more. So they're extremely bureaucratic and they're all about rules and they're following those rules blindly because the grant, the whole belief system they have is built about this grand design that nobody knows what it even is. So they're indoctrinated to just follow rules. And the rules are, since some random person might have, not a random person, a person in power might have had a vision that says every acolyte needs to, this is not in the game, it's just me describing how it works, um, needs to, I don't know, uh, brush their teeth at 5 a.m., Point six every second morning when the moon is on half or some stuff like that. And then it's going to be, okay, this is dogma. So you need to follow protocol number 45, 60, 70, 20, where this is uh, documented on a stone slab somewhere. And this is how they work. So that means the person like that, every route of patrol they're basically taking on these islands is something like that. It's been defined by someone who says, this is exactly how you should walk. It's the right of patrol. They're not guarding something. It's a right they're conducting. It's, it's their sacred duty. So they just walk on these perfect paths. And whenever something bad happens, they need to get back to the right patrol. It's these sort of things that the Inquisition has been designed around to sort of support that. Um, that's just the one part with the Inquisition. Then, of course, we have the magical abilities uh, that are there. And this is, as I said before, was one of the main reasons we did all this thing. Um, is that they are... Well, we could basically do what we wanted to. Um, I guess we might talk about abilities later on uh, again. But for a... It just allowed a lot of creative freedom. <laughs> We're not bound by reality for that. We could do things like the character with the cannon you mentioned that can actually load crew members into that cannon and shoot them to another place somewhere, uh, use that as a repositioning tool, which is very cool and stealth, things like that. And then the final big part that we also wanted to incorporate is, as I said before, there's a lot of quick saving and quick loading going on in these games. And that has always been, like, there are certain people who don't like that and I understand that. Like, they view it as safe scumming uh, and they say that's a bad thing. Like, uh, I need to... Like it's it's it breaks immersion basically i think is what it does for many people and so we try to take that aspect and put it into the narrative of the game so this is a power that your pirate ship the marley has she can rewind time in certain it, basically it's just a quick so quick load um, but she can rewind time and, and rest, like, capture a memory and then restore that memory and we're also doing some very cool stuff in the story with that later on so it's it's a core thing the games build on so to make that very long or summarize that very long <laughs> statement it's we've done it so we can do cool abilities and have fun on the game design side and we've also created this world in a way that it supports the core mechanics and makes it more believable the whole game more less immersion breaking basically perfect perfect fantastic and wonderfully detailed answer i love it next question i want to talk about planning and being patient. There are two core components of a player. They need to know when. When to actually, they got a, you could say it's an information rich game. It's not a fog of war. You've got, you know, the whole world is the oyster, so to speak. Or even if it is a rotten, sort of half dead or undead one, it's still there. 
But what's really interesting is to really be successful, at least in my opinion, and yes, you can pull it off without doing this, but there is dexterity aspects too. The player does have to move in the right place and do the things in the right timing to the point where the takedowns are different between characters. The duration of time and animation is different. Some are faster than others, making you really think on your feet, which is kind of counterintuitive against the planning and the methodical way of working. How have you found marrying those two different aspects of the interaction of playing Shadow Gambit, the Cursed Crew? Because it's they seem to be at odds with each other, and I've encountered this a lot in video games, especially recently, where you have two diametrically opposed experiences being meshed together. Yeah, I think this is basically one of the core identities that this genre is known for, is that it's it's a very tactical game but it's real time which most tactics games aren't and that causes a lot of problems i think and it's also a reason why the game is even more niche than maybe other tactics games because people might not want to have that dexterity aspect in there we have a lot of tools that make it so you don't need to be that quick uh you can always pause the game these sorts of things um and we have a planning mode that i'm going to talk about in a bit that is basically at the core of it all um but I also think that this adds to what we've discussed before, the the variety of how the game feels, because it is a very clear separation of a planning phase and then an execution phase. The planning phase usually is a lot longer, like your positioning, you're trying to get to the right position, hide your characters, set up the plan of attack, basically. You analyze which guard sees which other guard, and you come up with something where, like, okay, I'm going to start by taking out this guy, or I'm going to take these two guys out. Like, there's very many solutions, usually. But you're going to pick one that's your own, uh, and then you're going to roll with that. Um, so that part takes quite a bit of time, and I think most of the brain power. And then you enter that part of where you actually execute it. And the games are, I think they're not as punishing as they used to be. Like, especially the older games are extremely punishing. The Commandos games, um, you can crank our difficulty up so you have that sort of experience again. But the, the, the intended difficulty that most people will play and is not that hard anymore but it is still very punishing when compared to other games um it requires very meticulous timing and sometimes even the millisecond might be what's missing but and this is where the quick save and quick load comes in um that's okay in a game where you can iterate uh, as much as you want to it's designed in a way that like if you have a game that is about millisecond timings and if you fail the punishment is very hard that's not fun. But in our game, there is basically no punishment for that because that sounds boring, but it's not uh, because you can just reload and you can try again. And that really makes it so that people can, and this is uh, come up with like their own solutions. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, and it also allows you to try different approaches um, at all times. And now why I think that the the real-time aspect, which can be off-putting at first for some people, I think, especially, as I said, in the tactics and strategy genres, is actually a very big advantage, in my opinion, over the turn-based games, is that it allows for dexterity to matter, and thus you can make almost everything work. Um, I've been thinking about that quite a bit, about why, like, because I want to understand how it works, right, and, and why that's possible. And there are very few things in the game if they are not completely ludicrous that do not work so people can come up with the weirdest solution to a problem 
And if they bang their head against it long enough, and they can do that because they can iterate in, in quick loads and they can optimize up to a millisecond timing, and it will work at some point most of the times. And this is something you can't do in a turn-based game, right? I mean, because it's just you press attack and the attack happens. And maybe there's a dice roll or something. But um, there is no optimizing. It, it's just the strategic part of choosing the actions. It's not about the execution at all. And in our games, you can, if you want to, use the execution to brute force a method and be very proud of that in the end. The good thing is you don't have to. Like Everything is designed in a way that you never have to be that precise like you if you think and have a good plan you can do it without being this precise but i think this is sort of the beauty and it's, it's also what i see that people who play the game a lot like the speedrunners and stuff like that where they find a lot of depth and 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 fun in that and figuring and optimizing and you can optimize it very hardly uh, very hard um and yeah so this is the the beauty of it and and the problem is that Many people don't like it, uh, and they, it stresses them, and uh, they want to play it slower. And for that, we try to implement things that help them. Uh, for example, as I said, you can pause the game at any time, so you can just sit there and wait. Another thing that most people don't even realize, because it feels like second nature now, is in this genre, at least, like there, and sometimes there have been set pieces that you have used this, but in this genre, up until Shadow Tactics, there have not been bushes. Um, we, I don't want to say we invented them, but we realized that while you're in that planning phase, you want to feel safe, right? And and the Commandos games and the Desperados games didn't have that. You would always hide behind a couple of crates or something, and then the guard would move and they would suddenly see you. And this creates another type of tension. But what we wanted to be, as I said, we want perfect information. So we want to create these spaces where you know that if I sit in a bush, and we have a lot of bushes on our maps, like there's a lot of, of hiding spaces, you're safe. You can just sit there and you can observe as long as you want to and, and analyze everything. And then when you're ready, you move out of that. So this is one aspect that makes it better or more okay that it has these two elements because it, it enforces the planning phase a lot. And then we have the pause. So if you're in a tight situation, you can always hit pause and do something and react. So you don't need fast reactions, basically. You don't need to react fast, only pressing the pause button, I guess. And the biggest part is what we call shoulder. No, I think it's, I think it's shadow mode again. It was shadow mode in shadow tactics, shoulder mode in desperados, and now it's shadow mode again, um, which is a mode where you can plan one action per character. And that, is where the real beauty of the game comes out because you can synchronize actions and you can be very precise there. You can have them all execute at the same time. You can execute them one by one. You can, so in the timing that you want them to happen. And, um, and this is a tool that basically makes it so you don't need to click fast. Like you can set up the plan um, and then you don't need the dexterity to be like a 200 APM StarCraft player to click it all through or something. You can sit there and you can be like, I'm going to, wait until the right moment and i hit q the first action happens i click w maybe the second one happens in e whatever hotkeys you've set on your keyboard or you click it in the ui um and these actions happen and then you realize oh i've been off a little bit so you just reload and you try these timings again but they're very generous and they're more generous than having to do a complex thing like select skill click skill double click stuff like that um so this is it's not only extremely satisfying to pull off a plan that works with multiple characters at once. I think this is the high point of the game whenever you do that. But it's also needed to balance that real-time versus uh, turn-based or, or tactical planning versus dexterity layer that's there. Yeah, 
that's that's really where I wanted to delve into there. So thank you, thank you so much for that. For me, it's uh, it's a really detailed answer again. I want to talk about something that's a little bit benign because we did talk a little bit about the abilities, but I want players to discover them for themselves. They are fantastic, everyone. And I'm going to go over to something that many people will quite maybe find is benign in nature, but I think it's critical in games like Shadow Gambit, the Curse Crew, in that the camera controls are really very powerful. I mean, you give a lot to the player. You zoom right in, and you can zoom all the way out to, like, you're just overviewing the whole map of the islands. And um, why? Why did you do that? So in our old games, there was a maximum zoom level that was at a certain point, and that's usually for performance reasons. Like, we would love to just zoom out and see the whole map, uh, but that just that doesn't work <laughs> from no. a tech standpoint. So um, we always had to scrap that, and it wasn't needed in the old games. Like, there was a small mini-map that you had, um, and you could look at the mini map or open it, the, maximize it, and look at it in a big way, and then plan your path and then move through. Yeah. Um, and but for Shadow Gambit, we changed how the maps worked a lot. Um, they've become less linear. Uh, the old ones weren't linear; they had there's multiple paths, but usually had a beginning where you started. You could choose where you start, and you had an ending where you would end up. And for Shadow Gambit, we made it so that you can land anywhere on an island you want to. And the islands are rather are larger than the old maps. They're sort of mini open worlds, I would say, um, that you can discover. And it it is very hard to, if you're not familiar with how they look, like how they work if you're on it for the first time, you do need a sort of overview thing. And so we knew that we needed to zoom out more than we did in the old maps. You needed to get that overview. You needed, I need to go over there. You need to see that. Um, so we came up the idea with that overview map that if you scroll to a certain point, uh, the game switches in a 2D map. So that allows us to basically disable the 3D models uh, below and you can see the map. It, it has icons for other guards. So you can do your planning there. You will see where the next objective is going to be or, or where the spawn points are, where the exit points are. Um, and it gives you like a different sense of space of these islands, I think. Mm. Another thing, like there's also a lot of rotation of the camera that you can do, right? That's also something we had to boost up for the old games because we don't know what direction you're coming from. In the older games, we could plan for a direction. We knew that you would most likely be coming from the bottom left for this setup, so we could place environment pieces in a way that they wouldn't obscure any vision. We could place every guard in a way that you would see them. In Shadow Gambit, we don't know what side you're coming from. So while the level designers are trying their best to not obscure important things, like there might be a guard standing behind a house, there are features to see that guard anyway with outline displays and stuff like that. But like you will be moving the camera a lot more. You will be rotating the camera a lot more. And we need like players to get used to that as well. Um, so there's a change in, in how we needed to, had to approach that sort of. Um, yeah, uh, I think that's the gist of the camera. It's Yeah, it sounds like you did it because you could. But you also did it because it did actually help especially yes. when you're trying to plan out your your next objective and see where everything is and you could do multiple it's just i just love that yeah that there's also an important part that we realized with it is that the game can run into a problem uh, because it's these huge spaces um but you don't need to clear all of it you're usually just there to go to one specific area and you can ignore 90 percent of what's around you 
um, just sneak through. This wasn't true in our old games. In our old games, you basically had to clear the whole map, uh, which was missions were a lot longer. And A, so we have people that are used to that and they need to get used to a new mission structure. And B, like you get into this flow where you just look what's in front of you and you're like, ah, this guy sees that guy and you take them down and oh, well, there, there's a guy. I have to... And then you just worm your way, like completely missing where you're actually wanting to go. You're just following the guards basically and just killing everybody. And then suddenly you realize, wait a minute, where am I? Like I'm completely in the wrong side of the map now because I just followed that. I just flowed with it. And so we needed an overview map to show you that you can revert to sometimes and be like, wait a minute, I'm, where am I going? Like I can completely ignore these five people on the right. I just sneak past them because my objective is on the left actually. And it helped a lot with that getting the locations right also if you come from different sides like you have a different camera angle right than another player might have like you're coming from the north i'm from the east so we see a different layout of the map it takes a lot more time to internalize how that thing actually looks um compared to having it always in the same rotation in front of you as in our old games so for all that the overview map was very crucial people who are very used to the game they don't use it at all anymore like i never open the overview map because i know where i need to go but it's very important for people who played for the first time second time third time um that they always have that option and it looks it looks great when you do it like oh what's that that's 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 odd. Like, yeah, it's a pirate game. You want a map where there's an X. Yeah, like the, exactly. There. Yeah. Exactly. So, Shadow Gambit, the Cursed Crew, has been developed by Me 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 Games. Um, where did the name of the studio come from? Um, that was during our studies uh, when we were studying together in German. Me 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 is like it's a I don't know the English word for it, but it's 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 it stands for a, it's a sound you make or, or you say that if you want to um, say that someone's crying, basically. And it's like, oh. me, 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 me. Oh, um, okay. yeah. So the logo is a crying little girl uh, oh, that we okay. have. There you go. And um, it's because we've been complaining so much while the tools are bad. Like, oh, why is <laughs> Blender crashing again? Or back then, 3ds Max, Blender doesn't crash as much. Uh, and and these sorts of things, and it was we were just me me meing a lot, and then it was just a joke, like during studies that we called us that, and but it sort of stuck. <laughs> and uh, what platforms is uh, Shadow Gambit: The Curse Crew available on? Um, it's available on PC, and there we have it on Steam, EGS, GOG, mm-hmm. and it's available on PS Five and the two Xboxes, which I always forgot the names of. <laughs> Series yeah, one and Series X, and yeah, this, yeah, it, it's not on the last gen, basically. Oh, so. okay, it's on the Series S and Series X, Excellent. and it's Steam Deck verified, as as you know. It is, yes, most definitely. So, Moritz, it's been wonderful having you on the show, chatting about the design and development of Shadow Gambit: The Curse Crew, and uh, you've been very open and honest about uh, it's it's uh, well the the intricacies of all the mechanics and it's been really really good so i've got to say thank you thanks for having me it was a good time you have been listening to the sausage factory podcast part of the cane and rinse collective support us for just two us dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash cane and rinse for early extended and exclusive podcasts find us on twitter facebook instagram twitch YouTube and at our website, canorince.com. <laughs> <laughs>